Hello, All Souls family. Uh, just a couple of things before we get going uh, tonight. Uh, baptism. If you would like to follow Christ in baptism, would love to talk with you about that. We'll be doing that on the 25th. Just email me, Doug at allsoulsknoxville.com. Also, if you're new and you'd like to find out a little bit more about the church with just one evening on September 27th, we're having a little welcome dinner. You can meet some of our leaders and learn a little bit more. Uh, just uh, one evening there. Check out the show notes for an email where you can sign up for that. Friday morning, I spoke with a friend who had spent the week in Memphis working with leaders trying to respond to the uh, horrific outbreaks of violence there. Pray for Memphis, he pleaded. He said, tensions are so high, it's a powder keg and it could explode. He said, I know your church seeks the peace of the city. Pray for the peace of Memphis. Well, I mentioned this conversation later in the day and it led to a fascinating and kind of difficult conversation about how does healing really come to a community? How, how do you reweave the torn relationships in a city? How does a community work out her problems together instead of breaking down into competing tribes? My friend mentioned the prospect of riots and violence, the National Guard coming in. What can happen in a city or what can you do in a city to heal wounds long before the pain is so great that there is blood in the streets? We're going to finish our study of the book of Ruth tonight and we've been asking this question of the book. What does this beautiful, strange, ancient book teach us about healing communities? A major theme in the book of Ruth is redemption. The word redeemer is mentioned 20 times in the book, stressing its importance as a central theme in the book and in the Bible. It's redemption of a painful past and a seemingly hopeless present. We see this played out in two ways in the book, on a micro and a macro level. On a micro level, the book is about the redemption of Naomi's refugee family who are driven by food insecurity and death to the edge of survival. And they begin the book empty and they end with fullness. On a macro level, the book is about the redemption of the world as the offspring of Ruth and Boaz is Jesus the Messiah. And we've noticed that at every level, God's redemption works into the torn fabric of our world through the tiniest of loving acts. The kindness of Ruth pledging herself to Naomi. Boaz's kindness to Ruth. And the remarkable love that develops across ethnic or what today we might call racial lines. I've wondered if a contemporary writer was trying to work with these same themes that are in this book today, you know, uh, how would she or he do it? And they, they might set the story in Birmingham in 1950 and explore what happens when a white, wealthy, powerful pillar of the city whose family earned their wealth from plantations 
falls in love with a black housekeeper whose family is about to lose their small home. Uh, if, I've, if I've read the history correctly, the tension between the Moabites and the Israelites was as severe, if not more severe, as some of the racial tension our country has known. As a matter of fact, I think you could read the book of Ruth, and every time you see the word Moabite, you could uh, insert the N-word, because I think that's how negative uh, that word would have been in Hebrew culture at the time. Well, we reach the climax of the book at the end of chapter 3. And if you've been following along, you know what we're asking the question, will Boaz become Naomi's redeemer? Will Ruth marry Boaz? Tune in and find out. And that leads us to the opening scene in the final episode of our mini-series. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down, and then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, hey, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. If not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Israel had extensive laws protecting the poor. One of those laws called for a family member to purchase the land of a relative who could no longer afford to keep it. And this protected the vulnerable family member. The person purchasing the land was called the Redeemer. And so there is a man in the village who is a closer relative to Naomi than Boaz is, and he is the Redeemer. Well, business in ancient village culture took place at the city gate. So Boaz goes to the gate of the city. He waits until he sees the Redeemer walk by, gathers ten elders as witnesses, and then asks the man to redeem Naomi by purchasing Elimelech's land. The Redeemer agrees. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, oh, oh, I can't redeem it for myself. That would impair my own inheritance. You take my right of redemption. I, I can't redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi 
all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now let's pause for a moment and look at this scene carefully with open eyes before we ask what we might learn here about redemption. Boaz essentially uses a bait and switch ploy to scare off the would-be redeemer. By the way, he adds slyly, uh, did I mention you're also buying a Moabite woman Boaz presents Ruth in the least appealing way to the Redeemer. She's Ruth the Moabite, remember the N-word, the wife of the dead. So that means now the financial gain that the man hoped to acquire vanishes. And this property is put up for sale and is supposed to now remain associated with the name of the dead man, Elimelech, and his son, Malan, who still has some claim as Ruth's husband. And this is a big switch. No longer is a redeemer asked to simply keep the property of a poor relative within the extended family. Now he has to raise up a son for the men who have no living descendants to perpetuate their family name. Now redemption may be happening here, but it's happening through some pretty shady circumstances. For starters, we've seen this before, but let's acknowledge it again. A Hebrew man is buying a Moabite woman as property. This is wicked. It's a profoundly broken and sinful culture that God is choosing to work through just as he chooses to work through ours today. Boaz is a savvy businessman. He's worked the deal to get what he wants. Maybe he's not done something technically illegal by the standards of his culture, but he's been pretty manipulative and not really forthright with the other man. And while we're on the subject of God working through messiness and sin, let's remember where we are in, in history. The book of Ruth is set, quote, in the time of the judges, unquote. These judges were tribal chieftains. There was no centralized authority, and as the judges weakened morally, chaos ensued. It was the Wild West, but far worse. It was near anarchy. Everyone, according to the book of Judges, did what was right in their own eyes. So this is just a deeply immoral, wicked time in history. And then think of some of the backgrounds, the Bible stories that the readers of Ruth would know about. Uh, Ruth is a Moabite. Moab is the child of Lot by 
incest, according to Genesis. Boaz is a descendant of Judah and Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. In a very horrific story, Judah sleeps with her and impregnates her. The people at the gate bless Boaz and Naomi and they say, May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Well, do you remember that story? Jacob wants to marry Rachel, but her father tricks him into marrying her sister Leah first. And then he's allowed to marry Rachel in turn for seven more years of labor. And they don't live happily ever after. Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, shows favoritism to her. It causes terrible family jealousy and dysfunction. There's incredible conflict and treachery. And Rachel eventually gives birth to Joseph and dies giving birth to Benjamin. See, this, this is how redemption works, though, in the Bible. If you want a God walled off from the suffering and sin of humanity, read Plato. The God of the Bible puts his hands into the mud. And he doesn't wait for some enlightened society to emerge who is sophisticated enough to understand his ways. No, he reveals himself amidst the darkness and depravity of humanity at its worst. God redeems through the mess. He doesn't go around it. You know, in a strange way, I find this hopeful. And here's a question I've often asked as a pastor. Why does ministry have to be so messy? Now, I started my uh, first uh, position in 1983, so coming up on 40 years. When I look back, I see God faithfully at work. I see people come to faith and grow in faith. I see churches planted, flourishing. I look back and I remember tender worship services, healing, saved marriages, strengthened families. I see sacrificial service and care for the poor, sharing the gospel, rich, lifelong communities, celebrating births, grieving deaths, holding each other close no matter what. I look back and I see people with great political and social and ethnic differences gathering as one at the table. I see generous giving. I see unbelievably faithful prayer. I see grace, hospitality, renewal, callings affirmed, vocations discerned. I see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and reconciliation. Oh, I look back and I'm just filled with gratitude when I've seen what God has done through his people. Well, I've also seen a lot of mess. I've seen good people hurt one another and never reconcile, carrying their bitterness out the door with them like a cancerous tumor. I've seen disappointment and burnout and regret. I've seen loss of faith. Look around the church today, there's a mess. Look back over the history of the church, even more mess. There's scandal and politics and arrogance and pride and even violence. And of course, I've seen my own brokenness and failure along the way as well. 
For a lot of us, maybe you're here too, I know I have been at some point the messiness of the Christian family and the messiness of how we try to follow God together, let alone the mess in my own life, creates a crisis of faith. I mean, how on earth could a good and beautiful God be present in such a mess? Dare we believe a good God could work in and through a church family that includes adulterous popes and genocidal medieval crusades and sexual abuse scandals and boring small groups where half the people don't show up and nasty church fights and all the other messes that make up life in the Christian family? But my friend, that is the Christian story. That it's one of the reasons I'm still a Christian is because the biblical story is so true to life and life is a constant mess. I think when I was younger, I thought that one day it would change. In my 20s, I thought maybe I'd know more in my 30s and it wouldn't be a mess. And then in my 30s, I thought maybe another degree and by the 40s, there wouldn't be as much mess. In my 40s, I thought maybe in my 50s, I could figure it out and there wouldn't be as much mess. Trust me, especially if you're younger, it just gets messier. Marriage is messy, parenting is messy, dating is messy, dying is messy, birthing is messy, aging is messy, business is messy, church is messy, universities are messy, high schools are messy, hospitals are messy, nursing homes are messy, nonprofit work is messy, politics are messy. Retirement's messy, creating is messy, collaborating is messy, our inner lives are messy, our outer lives are messy, staying is messy, leaving is messy, starting is messy, ending is messy, life is messy. The good news of the gospel is that the God of the Bible works through messy people in messy cultures with messy agendas to bring about redemption. I hope that brings you hope. Because that's the way the kingdom of God has always, always grown in and through wicked culture. Broken people, fallen systems. That's what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is like a tiny seed that grows into a large plant quietly until it gives shade to the, to the birds. The kingdom of God grows like that quietly and slowly in the soil of our suffering. Well, now we come to the end of the book of Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. 
They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So the neighborhood women tell Naomi she is blessed because Ruth has given birth to a male heir who will be her redeemer. And Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David. The struggling family that returns to Bethlehem empty and barren is now made full and given a role to play in bringing the Messiah to the world. What lingers for you now as we conclude our study of the book of Ruth? What might God be saying to you through this book? Well, here's what lingers for me. The fault lines in this ancient society are brutally drawn in blood. There is tension around ethnicity or race. Hebrews hate Moabites and vice versa. There is tension regarding gender. Men own women. There is tension around social class. Wealthy have power over the poor. There is food insecurity. Problems with the climate. Famine. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So this is really a setting for the Game of Thrones. We might expect an HBO blockbuster about kings and queens seeking revenge and power and practicing violence and cruelty. But this is a story from another kingdom about another way. And you've probably noticed all through the book all the foreshadowings of the way of Jesus. There's a lot of hints about the gospel in the book of Ruth. So instead of the Game of Thrones, we get a quiet story from the margins about a small circle of people who have every reason to hate and hurt each other, but instead practice tiny acts of mercy and kindness. And that's how redemption comes into the world. How might Memphis heal? How might Knoxville heal? Well, there's a big question and there's a lot of complexity and certainly many different answers. The book of Ruth offers one, though, I hope you'll take seriously. Healing happens in a community. When people who naturally distrust each other, are suspicious of each other, maybe even don't like each other, maybe live in different parts to be away from each other. When people from those warring tribes 
Instead of choosing to hurt and judge and shame, choose kindness, choose mercy, choose friendship and covenant loyalty. And against all the tides of hate that surge through humanity, these little pockets of redemption change the course of history when they choose love. I don't want to be naive and say this is the only thing we need to do. But it's one thing we need to do. It's to build relationships with people who are different than us, who we wouldn't normally know, and practice kindness and love and loyalty for a lifetime. And when enough of those relationships are woven into the fabric of a community, there's strength and healing that comes when tragedy strikes. And beloved, this is why I felt called to, to leave you this year. In some small way, I hope to give the rest of my life to finding the Boazes and Ruths and Naomi's that want to reweave the fabric of our community across racial and ethnic lines. And I pray that wherever you live, you might find a, a way to join in that as well.